Hey, this is Hojo, and you're listening to me on Baseball and Barbecue with my two best friends, my new best friends, Jeff and Leonard. So y'all enjoy it, okay? Studios of Baseball and BBQ. We are live and pre-recorded. This is Jeff Cohen, along with Leonard Hollywood Aberman. And here is episode 145 of Baseball and BBQ. Leonard, how you doing? Good, Jeff, where the BBQ stands for barbecue. That's right. I'm good. How are you? Okay. Excited. Excited episode 145. You know, the fives, fives and tens. Yes. Fives and tens, 145. And Jeff, I just want to tell everybody before we get to our guests, keep everybody in anticipation that bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events. With first to market odds and lines, find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in game betting, props, and futures. Head to bet online today or use your mobile device to join today and make your first sports bet. Use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B L E A V 50, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Jeff, we're going to start by telling everybody who we have on the show. Why don't you get us started? Okay. You know, we interviewed Bill Cachetas, who wrote a great book on Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver. And it is called Lefty and Tim. And how Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver became baseball's best battery. And when we say battery, we're not talking Duracell or... (laughs) (laughs) or Energizer. (laughs) But you know what? They kept going and going and going. And the two lefty, uh, Carlton, of course, it it definitely seems like Tim McCarver had a lot to do with his Hall of Fame career. Absolutely. And we get into more than just lefty and Tim. Oh, yeah. So we uh, we get into Kurt Flood. You know, it's it's just a wonderful interview. It's one of those books, though, and interviews that baseball isn't, you know, it's not in a bubble. You're going to have all these connecting factors, and we talk about it all. Yeah. Bill Cachetis was excellent. And then, Jeff, what goes better with baseball? That's barbecue. 
Oh, I was going to say a picnic, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Barbecue. Absolutely. Right. And, we and, tell our, us. and we have our, our co-host joining us for this interview. Yes. Doug Shiding. Doug Rogue. He's gone rogue. Shiding. And he, yeah, always great to have Doug. And of course, we have with Doug, Janice Smella uh, of Smella Barbecue. And we are going to, you guys are really going to enjoy the conversation uh, that we had with them. So, I mean, it's baseball, it's barbecue. What more can you want? Exactly what right. more, right? Jeff, if they, if they want to get in touch with the show, tell them how to do it. Well, you give us a call. 516-855-8214. You can leave a, a, a comment on our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. You can comment us on Twitter, on the Twitterverse, at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. You can email us, BaseballandBBQ at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.BaseballandBBQ.Weebly.com and rate and review us subscribe subscribe to the show easy enough and jeff i'm not kidding when i say this because i did have someone once ask me this when you call that number we are not picking up that phone it it is a message yes and you leave a message i once had somebody ask me how come they always get the message and I seriously said, I said, because it is not, it is a message. That is so, if you call that number, you don't expect us to answer, but please leave a message. We appreciate it. And with that, here is Bill Cachetas on the book, Lefty and Tim. Bill Cachetas is a historian, educator, and the author of more than 20 books. His baseball books include Macho Road. 1993 Phillies, and Baseball's Unwritten Code, Jackie and Campy, the untold story of their rocky relationship and the breaking of baseball's color line, Mike Schmidt, Philadelphia's Hall of Fame third baseman, and his latest, Lefty and Tim, how Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver became baseball's best battery. Something tells me Bill is a Phillies fan. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Bill Cash this. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for having me, Jeff and Leonard. And thank you for writing this book, by the way. That's that's the big thank you. But I, I thought Leonard was going to start with wait, Mike Schmidt. He went to Ohio University, same university that Leonard went to. I was going to. I was going to tell you how much Mike Schmidt and I have in common. Well, <laughs> the fact that we're both Ohio University graduates. You're you're much younger. Then Mike Schmidt. Yeah, I didn't get to see him play in college. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good man. And he speaks very highly of Ohio State. uh, Excuse me, Ohio University. There is a legend about him hitting the field house with a one of his gigantic home runs, which turns out, according to him, never happened. But it's legend there. Ohio (laughs) University. Yeah. When Go facts ahead, become legend, print the legend. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, this book, Lefty and Tim, this was a fantastic. Why, why write a book on Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver together, not, not separately? Well, you know, <laughs> interesting question. The last baseball book I'd done was Macho Row. 
And I, you know, those guys were my contemporaries. And it was really the last team I really followed and had an endearment to. I just, you know, Phillies won the World Series in 2008, choir boy kind of personality, nice guys, but I was just never really interested <laughs> in, in those guys. And I grew up with this team. I mean, I was, you know, 11, 12 when Carlton came to Philadelphia in 1972. And I remember the Phillies were, uh, they were just pathetic. They were terrible. And here comes this guy and it's, you know, every four man rotation, every fourth day, we get a win. And for someone who just suffered, just suffered the Phillies as I did, you know, he was, he was a ray of sunshine and he just took Philadelphia by storm in 1972. And then in 1973, a reversal of fortunes, he goes 13 and 20. And he's in like everybody's doghouse, at least in the press. So that storyline for me was just extremely compelling. Now, at the same time, Carlton is rather unusual, as many left-handers are. And very quirky in his habits, his training routines, of course, not wanting to speak to the press, not wanting to speak to me, at least on the record. And I really didn't want to have to go into a lot of that stuff. I talked to Larry Christensen, who's a friend of mine, and I approached him and I said, I grew up with these guys, so to speak. Do you think that he would be willing to talk to me, you know, if I did a book? And, you know, Elsie said, well, maybe I could try. But the real story is Tim McCarver and Carlton. And he was right. Now, I knew a lot about both of them. And I knew I knew they were very good friends on field, off field. I knew that their numbers as a battery were extremely good, but I didn't, I had no idea how good they were. I mean, these guys were like in, 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 in the top 20 batteries of all time. As I was doing the research and then crunching the numbers, I, I was just blown away. That, you know, clearly from 1976, 79, they were the best battery in baseball, hands down. But all time, you know, 13th overall, that's in, in terms of, I guess, starts and 16th in terms of uh, victories. It's just very impressive. Obviously, the book starts with the beginning of their careers and any baseball lover. Um, you don't have to be a Phillies fan, but any baseball lover is going to just really enjoy reading about these guys now let's so the beginning was very interesting McCarver when he was uh, drafted and he ended up going to the Cardinals it was very interesting because Bill Dickey of the Yankees I found this interesting said to him you know whatever offer you get or whatever come back to us as a final thing and they will when when McCarver got the offer from the Cardinals they were worried that they would lose it and then he said for years, he regretted not contacting Bill Dickey. McCarver could have become a Yankee. Yes. Yes. And his, you know, back in, in those days, these guys didn't have agents. His father was his agent. And, you know, they were offering some significant money for the day. And his father just said, look, you're going to take it. And Tim did what he was told. 
you don't you don't argue with a guy like his dad. He was a Memphis cop, a very well respected man, but uh, an authority figure. But yeah, Tim had said that he really kind of regretted not returning that phone call. And and I think Dickie genuinely liked Tim. I mean, he he he, he kind of took him under his wing, and you know, to this day, Tim will talk about uh, how Bill Dickey, you know, gave him the key to his success as a catcher, which is you are the pitcher's best friend, not just, you know, out there uh, when he's on the mound, but you have to know your pitcher. You have to get into their mind. And that's the key to success. And that was McCarver's key to success with his pitchers, particularly Steve Carlton and Bob Gibson. I mean, this book is every bit as much about Bob Gibson, the mm-hmm. first part of it, as it is about those other two, because he yeah. figured prominently in both their careers. If McCarver had become a Yankee, who would he have competed with for that catching spot? So let's see, 68. Well, Elston Howard was finishing up. You know what? From 19... Well, no, the 60s, he would have been competing, I guess, against Baron Elston Howard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Tim McCarver came to the Cardinals at age 17. That's right. In so 59. 59. Right. 59. Right. So, yeah. yes, he would have been competing against Barra and Howard. Exactly. So I was I was thinking his career would have been quite different. Yes, very different. <laughs> if, if it probably would have happened. moved him. Probably would have moved him because he was actually a, a, a very good hitter and he had speed. And as you know, as you know, the catcher second base positions are interchangeable. I mean, you got a lot of guys going back and forth between those positions. He could have played second base. I think mm-hmm. he could have. He was a catcher, though. I mean, that was his mental makeup. He was a catcher. You're right. His career would have been very different because I just don't see him displacing either Elston Howard no. or Yogi Berra. No. Yeah. He was graduated high school. Three months later, he's on the Cardinals. Yeah. You know, that's an excellent question. I wish I had. Yeah, Leonard, that's that's an excellent question. I, I wish I had really pursued that with him. But, you know, when I asked him again, you know, why didn't you go with with the Yankees? Why didn't you follow up on your phone call? He said, hey, you know what? Cardinals were offering money. It was on the table. My dad said, take it. McCarver was pretty good in, in the World Series back in what? Was in 64, 64, 67, 68. With, with Gibson uh, on, on the team and. I guess Carlton really hasn't really uh, established himself as a, no. a ace yet, but Gibson was the uh, true uh, ace of that team. And he, uh, even though he didn't win an MVP, he, in 64, he batted 478, five RBIs, game-winning home run. He could have been the MVP, but for a guy named Bob Gibson, who was spectacular in himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. I get You're going to have to excuse me. I get very defensive about Tim because he was – really kind of my role model as a catcher. And I always felt that he got shortchanged. And if you look at the numbers, you're right. McCarver had an excellent series in 1964 and could have been just as easily as Bob Gibson, the MVP. But again, remember the 60s. Those were the years of, of pitchers. So you know, Gibson and, you know, Gibson's credit, he had a phenomenal World Series. So, you know, Tim you know, in my estimation, once again, was overlooked. I think the sorry thing about Tim's career is that it coincided with the emergence of the prototypical catcher as a power hitter. 
your, your Johnny Benches, your Carlton Fists, people like that, when that position was not that way. I mean, you look at the great Hall of Fame catchers. Uh, Mickey Cochran was not a home run hitter. It, frankly, he was a lot like McCarver. McCarver was compared to him by some catchers. And McCarver, he could do defensively, he could do everything that those power hitting catchers could do except one thing, throw. But he had a quick enough release where he could make up for it. So you don't get into the Hall of Fame for your defensive stats. We know that. Right. Unless you're Ozzie Smith. Unless, or, I was just going to say, yeah. unless you're Ozzie Smith. Robinson, right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We're yeah. not going to get started on third baseman. My all-time <laughs> here is Mike Schmidt, so we're not going <laughs> to have that discussion. But I was very happy to see that Tim got in. Uh, in the broadcaster's wing. But, you know, I, I know he never told me this, but I know, uh, you know, he's he's sorry that he didn't get in as a player. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this. And so we talk about just a Hall of Fame. Steve Carlton, 329 victories, absolute Hall of Famer walking in. But does he get in so easily if McCarver was not his catcher? I, I want to read it. No, he does not. Agreed. Just, no. Agreed. Your Absolutely book is proof that because look at his career. Okay. He had, we're celebrating the 50. Well, I haven't seen the celebration yet. We're supposed to have it in August when, you know, when the Phillies have their alumni in, but it's the 50th anniversary of that 1972 season. That is one of the greatest single seasons for a pitcher in the history of major league baseball. We got 27 and 10 wins, 1.97 ERA, eight shutouts, 310 strikeouts, and this is a guy who is winning 48.5% of all the games that the Phillies won that year because they were a lousy team. That would have been some total of Steve Carlton's career had McCarver not come back. And Tim will tell you to this day that it takes two to tango. Lefty had to want to be great, and he did work at it you know, to his credit, but sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. And one thing I could never understand is even though Frank Lucchese, the manager of the Phillies did not like Tim McCarver and wanted him traded. And then Paul Owens traded McCarver for uh, John Bateman, who was, I think, less of a catcher it during the 19s, during the 1972 season. You know, I, I don't understand that, especially with a guy like Owens, why he would do that, because you don't mess with chemistry. And those guys had tight chemistry. But be that as it may, Carlton and Bateman developed a good rapport, good enough for him to finish up a phenomenal season. Now, as I said, in 1973, as a reversal fortune, 13 and 20, but the stats are still there. I mean, the strikeouts, everything else is still there. But it, it was just that the, the the victory numbers that were just so appalling, really. And, you know, Carlton is eh, a 500 pitcher, 73, 74, 75. Well, McCarver wants to retire from baseball. He's with the Boston Red Sox. They let him go in 1975. Another regret he has because he could have been on that phenomenal 1975 Bo Sox team that went to the World Series and lost against the Cincinnati Reds, but be that as it may, McCarver's now looking for a job in broadcasting. He comes down to Philadelphia, interviews at KYW Radio, 
sees if he could get on the Phillies broadcast team. Paul Owens, general manager, says to him, no, we don't have any opening for a broadcaster, but we do have an opening for a pinch hitter and a backup catcher. And he really is unknown to McCarver at the time, thinking, you know, maybe, maybe we could turn Carlton's career around. And that's what happened. Because when McCarver came, he told Lefty because he'd watched them. I mean, he had gone back to the Cardinals for a while after he was traded, and he's watching Carlton pitch, and Carlton is not using that devastating slider. He abandoned it, frankly. And he comes back and he says, Lefty, you're going to throw the slider. That's going to be your out pitch, or it's going to be your setup pitch. And that is what resurrected his career because McCarver gave him the confidence. McCarver called his games. He called for that slider. And in 1977, Steve Carlton wins his second Cy Young Award. 1980, his third Cy Young Award. And 1982, his final Cy Young Award. That was all put in place by Tim McCarver. Go back to that 72 season quickly, because in the book you you cite it. And by the way, for everyone, we in in broadcasting, they say, repeat the book a number of times. So I'm going to repeat it because it's just so good. It is called Lefty and Tim, how Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver became baseball's best battery, recommended, excellent book. So you mentioned some great seasons in there, of course, Koufax and Gooden. And um, I, I forget some of the other seasons that you mentioned. But the thing that makes his season so amazing is how bad the Phillies were. But it's almost like when he pitched, the Phillies became a different team. And it wasn't just because he was just putting up amazing numbers. Psychologically, mm-hmm. they became a different team. They just knew they were going to win. And it's amazing if if you could have cloned him, the, the attitude that they had on that day he pitched, they are going to win the game. And and that's just amazing. That that season, I think, is even better than some of the other seasons mentioned in there for some of the other players. I wish that someone would do. I mean, uh, there is a book um, now his name popped out of my mind, but it's 90 percent mental. It's about pitching. It's a former it's Tewksbury, I think. Is it Tewksbury? No, it's not Tewksbury. I forget the pitcher who wrote it, but someone really has to do a study of the psychology of baseball because that season is a prime example of it. You have a core of very young players there who are taking their lumps. Larry Bow was the shortstop. Greg Luzinski was the left fielder. You had Don Money, who people thought were going to, was going to be the third baseman of the future. Didn't turn out that way. You had Denny Doyle, who made his name elsewhere. Willie, Willie Montanez, you know, all these young guys. And they really are just cutting their teeth in the major leagues. The Phillies were getting to the point where those young players were getting used to losing. I think one of the, the brilliant strokes of John Quinn, who was the general manager who traded for Carlton, was that he saw that they need veteran leadership. Now, obviously, you know, a pitcher can't really provide that veteran leadership because they only pitches every fourth or fifth day. Back then, every fourth day. But Carlton provided enough leadership, definitely among the pitchers, and enough leadership to give those kids a taste of what it was like to win that they they really felt. If you talk to Boa, 
you know, or Luzinski, they felt invincible. I mean, Boa would come in and he'd say in the locker room, it's Wednesday, we're going to win. And it's just amazing what a power pitcher like that with his talent could bring to the team, not just on the field, but psychologically. So you're, you're absolutely right, Leonard. You mentioned uh, Larry Boa, and uh, you know you get into the, his his role on the team. You know when he when he's with the Phillies, and he was uh, I guess what you call an instigator, wasn't? Oh he? God, <laughs> <laughs> he still is. He still is right. <laughs> um, I've really grown to like Larry Boa a lot. In, in fact, in many ways, he was a favorite of mine because he encapsulated the spirit of the Phillies. I mean, yeah, they needed Pete Rose to win in 1980, but the spirit of the team was Boa. I mean, he was there the entire time. I mean, they they, they brought him up in, in, I guess, 69 first, and he didn't stick. But then Lucchese made him his regular shortstop in 70, and he said, I don't care what you hit. You're my shortstop. And Boa really needed that. And Boa will tell you to this day, if he was trying to come up now, he'd never make it. To the majors, never. So much of Larry Bow was just moxie and hustle and <laughs> agitation. He was an agitator. Uh, his best friend was Greg Luzinski, the left fielder, and he 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 called him a fat pig to his to his face. You know what? What are you doing, right? But yeah, you know, Luzinski just brushed it off. Other people would not. Other people would not. And Carlton went right up to him, you know, I'm not taking any of your crap. And Carlton also protected the younger pitchers like Larry Christensen, because Bo would start on Christensen if he didn't have a good game. And LC, you know, recounted an experience where he he grabbed Boa by by the throat and said, you're not going to pull this crap with him. Stop. And Boa listened. Boa listened. He's not going to mess with greatness. He, he, you know, it was evident Steve Carlton was greatness, at least in 1972. Yeah, and other years too, you know, 80, yep. 82, he was pretty good. <laughs> you know, Lennon and I are both Mets fans, and I remember Seaver versus Carlton was, you know, must-see TV or must-go-to-the-game. Did not know until I read in your book that Carlton's first Major League victory was against the Mets, against another – Hall of Famer, Nolan Ryan, which happened to be Nolan Ryan's last game as a Met. Yes. How about that? Yeah. Uh, You know that I saw, I guess Ryan was pitching with the Astros. It was sometime in the mid-70s, I guess, maybe kind of towards the late 70s. But I was at a game at Veterans Stadium. It was 70 minutes. 70 minutes. I got home and it was still light out. (laughs) 70 minutes. Wow. Those guys were unbelievable. That is the most phenomenal pitching duel that I had ever seen because they no sooner get the ball back, they're into their delivery. Both of them. Yeah. Both of them. And they were power pitchers. And as you know, I I, I talk about later in the book, they were vying for strikeout king. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, Nolan Ryan left Carlton in the dust. Right. But, you know, 1982, 83, it was exciting baseball when those guys paired up. It sure. really was. But wasn't the didn't Carlton actually lead? He did strikeouts. Yes, uh, he did. Yeah. Okay. In '82, and then Brian started pulling away in '83. Right. And I know was, there was back and forth, very close. 
Yeah, yeah. But that was phenomenal baseball. And you know what baseball is today. I, I don't even know what they're playing out there today. Right, exactly. I, 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 it just, it, it, it disgusts me. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm a pitching coach on, you know, some amateur teams. And pitching is, it's a lost art. It's a lost art. I mean, I got a couple guys right now that are on knocking on the door of MLB. And, you know, I taught these kids how to pitch the old way. It's like, number one is location, which is a function of mechanics. Number two is change of speed. Number three is movement. And number four, far down, velocity. Well, everything today, everybody, every pitch has got to be nine miles an hour. Yeah. Don't pitch that way. Right. You know, there is a Greg Maddox. He got in the mm-hmm. Hall of Fame and it wasn't for his, you know, 100 mile an hour fastball. It's a, it's pitching is a lost art. And Carl, people like Carlton and Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver are, they're a dead breed. Mm-hmm. You'll never see the 20 game winner again. No. You know, you'll never see the complete games again. It disgusts me that I see an average of four pitchers every time I go to a ball game. But I, I, I'll, I don't even get me started. <laughs> you're going to, Bill, you're going to get Jeff started. So <laughs> he's like, uh, once you push that button, <laughs> he he's famous for his rants and that's part of it. You know, Bill, that's what real estate and pitching have in common. It's all about location. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And um, but- I got some swamp land in Florida for you. If you're interested <laughs> after the show, we'll talk. Right. But let, let's uh, one of the things that I that I found interesting among so many, but is McCarver when he met Gibson and McCarver readily admits to he was he was a racist. I mean, how, you know, it's it, it, it'll sound strange that, that I'm not excusing it. And I don't think anybody did. And he didn't. Right. And he realized it. it you, you know, it's it's like what you say about. You know, people say about children and if they're raised in a racist home and then they develop these racist ideas. McCarver was was, you know, that was how he was brought up. And I I think he was ashamed by it. And obviously the friendship that developed between him and Gibson is is a beautiful thing. Yeah, to me, that is a lot of what I've written about in baseball. (laughs) My first hero was Richie Allen. And you can't help but write about race, you know, when your first hero was Richie Allen, because that was the thing that brought me to baseball. And Philadelphia, as 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 you may know, was one of the most racist northern cities, probably only second to Boston in the mm-hmm. 1960s. So a lot of my work has dealt with racism and even the, the history I, I write. I deal with the history of racism. I deal with the Underground Railroad. I deal with slavery mm-hmm. in my other writing life. But that to me personally, was the most fascinating part of that book. Now, you know, Carlton, I never heard one thing or another. I just kind of think Carlton marched to the beat of his own drum, never really got involved in the politics, so to speak, of race. But Tim was caught in a crossfire. And here's a young guy coming out of Memphis who never really played on any teams with blacks. And he's a product of, you know, his upbringing. And you have that, and, and he, he described it to me, and he described it so well, 
that incident in spring training, I guess it was in 1960 or something, where there's an errant ball. Gibson throws a wild pitch or something. There's an errant ball, and there's a black kid that jumps the fence and picks it up. And McCarver goes running after him saying, you little N-word, give me back that ball. Oh, man. Gibson called him everything and his mother everything and just wouldn't let him get in a word edgewise. And he let him know from the jump, I'm not going to tolerate this. And, and McCarver understood that and he needed that lesson. And it became almost humorous because uh, Kurt Flood was actually became a pretty good friend of Tim's, too. And they'd be on the uh, bus in spring training going to some some city or something. And once McCarver walked in with an ice cream cone and Gibson said to him, hey, you know, Tim, let me have a look at that cone. And McCarver like thought about it and he said, I'll save you some, <laughs> you know, um, but you're right. I mean, he's a product of his environment and, and Memphis, Tennessee is not the most progressive place. I think another very profound moment for both McCarver and Gibson and definitely for their relationship was when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis in April of 1968. And McCarver goes over to Gibson and has a heart to heart with him. And I think that's when they came to an understanding, finally, an understanding about race and really became very good friends after that. One difference if Gibson's pitching a game and McCarver comes out, he's going to say, get your ass behind the plate. <laughs> the only thing you know about hitting is that you can't do, do it. it. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> One of the great lines in all of baseball. <laughs> you know, you wrote here and it says, and I'm going to quote this, Gibson's influence on Carlton's career cannot be overstated. Can yes. you elaborate on that? Yeah. And this is, this is, man, you guys really did read the book. I mean, you really, you, it, this is, this is very good interview. It's one of the best I've ever had. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Uh, Carlton, and he did this begrudgingly too. That's just Carlton. But Carlton, when they brought him up and put him into the rotation, I guess it was in 66, finally, and Gibson did not start out that season. He started out that season, I think, one and four, maybe one and five. And you know, he's losing. Gibson wants to try to mentor the young pitcher. So he goes up and starts talking to him and making some suggestions. You know what Carlton says to him? He says, what can you tell me? You're one and five. You're a loser. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. And so Gibson just backed off. He never said anything to him. But Carlton watched him. He watched him operate. Observed, yes. Carlton learned three very important things from Bob Gibson. Number one, the slider. Gibson showed him, even though he was a right-hander, how to throw a slider. And Gibson, it was to the dying day, very, very proprietary about that. I mean, McCarver once said in public that Carlton was the greatest, through the greatest slider he ever caught. And after the event was over, Gibson comes running up to him, running up to him with that glare. And McCarver knew he had misspoken. And he, he goes up to McCarver and says, McCarver, he might have the greatest left-handed slider. I got the greatest slider, right? But the slider, 
Gibson really showed him and Carlton went to him and, and tapped his, his, his brain for how to throw that slider in a trip they took to Japan, I think, after the 68 season. Yep. That was the biggest thing that Bob Gibson gave to Steve Carlton. The other thing is demeanor and how to conduct yourself on the mound. Gibson did not like people coming out to the mound. He didn't like anybody coming out to the mound. I mean, like really competitive starters, he's not going to give the ball up easily. And he doesn't want to listen to anybody, whether it's a teammate, a catcher, or even the manager. Carlton became that way. And actually Carlton, and I guess it was like 1978, maybe it was 79, Danny Ozark, the manager of the Phillies, comes out and uh, to the mound and he wants the ball from Carlton. Carlton says, no, I'm not giving it to you. No, I can go in here, right? Ozark reached out for the ball. Carlton took the ball, spiked it on the mound, and just trudged off. Tug McGraw, who came in to relieve him, was the guy who actually picked it up because Ozark wouldn't do it. But that's how stubborn Carlton was. And the third thing he learned from Gibson is make your remarks to the press very measured, if at all. Because Gibson was no charmer to the press. He didn't really like the press. And if you see the, you know, the mature, if we could use that word for Steve Carlton, the mature Steve Carlton, you know, from 1976 to 1979, he did all those things. He was the the Bob Gibson reincarnated. Oh, there's a fourth thing, too. Carlton, like Gibson, was not afraid to throw inside. Not afraid at all. I mean, I tell my pitchers, play to 17 inches, we're using that 18th inch. Okay, you back the the batter off that plate if he's off that plate. Well, you know, Gibson would do more than back him off. And so would Carl. Mm -hmm. You don't have that today. They don't do that. They don't do that. Uh, Another thing, Bill, that they don't do. And, and, you know, it it mentioned uh, a game that Carlton was having and was the square tied or something. You you just say he, he was in the 11th inning. He's pitching in the 11th inning. And that wasn't unheard of. Right. For pitchers, it was his game. He was pitching in the eleventh. Can in the, in this day and age, and and I got to be careful because I'll get Jeff started. But in this day and age, and now I'll get you started. And I got two people. But in this day and age, by the eleventh inning, we'd be on what the the fifth pitcher. That's right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. That's right. And Leonard, after your, your, your rotation, Nolan Ryan did that. Tom Seaver did that. Mm-hmm. Bob Gibson did that. All those guys did that. You know, that was the last generation of really respectable pitching. Yeah. Those guys, you will never see that again. No. And that's why you'll never see. Also, you'll never see the uh, the win totals. It's all, right. you know, now it's all based on. Uh, oh, boy, I'm now I'm starting, but it's all based on ERA. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the funny thing is you mentioned after 72, you mentioned Carlton's next year and you said stat wise, it wasn't bad. His win loss total was bad. Now, maybe even with that win loss total, he might be in consideration for a major award at the end of the season because of his other stats. You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Talking to my kids that are, you know, in high minors right now, you know, they're saying what's important, whip is important, spin velocity is important. Mm-hmm. What the hell are you talking about? You're messing <laughs> my language. Right. So I, I don't I, I have no. And and yes, you're absolutely right. You look at some of the stats these pitchers are putting up right now. Carlton's mediocre season would would probably win some awards. 
you know, in, in this day and age, it's just terrible. I mean, even right now, I mean, I, you know, I, I loved uh, Roy holiday, doc holiday, great pitcher, but you know what? He didn't have 300 wins, you know, 300 wins was like the gold standard to get you into the hall of fame. Well, now you could do it with two twenty. Yeah. That's it. Yep. The book is called lefty and Tim, how Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver became baseball's best battery. Like how he did that Leonard. <laughs> Let's I'm talk impressed. about Tim McCarver and one of the most controversial trades in baseball history. October 7th, 1969. Tim McCarver is involved in a trade with Kurt Flood, Joe Horner, and Byron Brown to Philly for Dick Allen and Cookie Rojas and Jerry Johnson. Mm-hmm. This is a trade where Kurt Flood refused to go to Philadelphia. And in effect, you know, down the line, changed the course of baseball history. That's right. I was very fortunate in my life to have Dick Allen as uh, a hero, a childhood hero, and even more fortunate to call him my friend for the last 20 years of his life. I'll never forget the last time. It was two weeks before he passed. I went out to Wampum because he lived out in Western Pennsylvania. And I, we were talking about a lot of things. And you got to know Dick. I mean, Dick is not going to have any kind of funereal atmosphere around him. He's, he's going to joke around with the people that he cares about and he's going to talk his career. And I said, I always had wanted to ask him and didn't uh, about that trade. You know, he had come up in, in Philly and he was traded with Rojas. The trade ended up just Jeff, as you said, being really a watershed in major league baseball because of the, implications for free agency. And he said two very interesting things to me. The first was that he had unbelievable respect for Kurt Flood to not only talk to talk, but walk to walk. And he said, these young players today don't understand what Kurt Flood did for the game of baseball and sacrifice his career and his family's financial well-being to do it. That was you know, very profound for me. The second thing, and, and, and Dick said to me, and I don't know if I would have had the guts to do it. The second thing he said to me, which I found very interesting was he said that, you know what, there was a reason why Rojas was traded with me. They both considered us troublemakers and I was troublemaking from one end and cookie started stirring up controversy against me in the clubhouse So they decided to part with both of us. And he gave me some specific examples uh, that we don't have the time to go into, but I I never realized that. That trade had a lot of racial implications to it as well. The way Allen was treated in Philadelphia was despicable. And it goes back to a fight that he had in uh, pregame batting practice against a white veteran power hitter by the name of Frank Thomas. This happened in July of 1965. And Thomas thought that Allen was chiding him for trying to bunt in the previous night's loss to the Cincinnati Reds. It wasn't Allen. Allen was minding his own business at third base. It was Callison who came over to third base to talk to Allen, and he was chiding Frank Thomas. And... Thomas, who, by the way, grew up with the Allen brothers just outside of Wampum. So they they knew each other. And Thomas thought, well, it was Allen. 
he started calling Alan, you know, Richie X, like, you know, after Malcolm X and Muhammad uh, Allen after Muhammad Ali and Allen had enough. So he, he went down there and Thomas did something you just don't do. He took his bat and he swung at Allen's head mm-hmm. and Allen ducked and took it on the, on the, on the shoulder. And there was a whole, you know, melee that happened there. Well, that night, the Phillies released Allen, uh, excuse me, released Thomas because he was an aging veteran and they knew they had a franchise player in Allen. He was the 1964 rookie of the year, the year before, and he's putting up really good numbers in 65. And then he, Allen is ordered not to say a single thing to the press about it. In other words, not to defend yourself. Whereas Thomas, who was popular at the time, had a radio show on WFIL. The next morning he goes on and he starts criticizing Allen, blaming the whole thing on Allen. That was the end of Richie Allen's career in Philadelphia, part one, because they treated, they called him the N-word. There were racial epithets. I remember going to a game with my dad and it was unbelievable. Unbelievable what they were calling him and booing him. And at this game, he comes up, he hits a three-run homer, and then everything they're cheering him. I mean, it's like a psychological mind game. Well, Kurt Flood saw that, Mm -hmm. and Kurt Flood didn't want any part of that. So he refused to go to Philadelphia, and the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history, absolutely. You know, Bill, the game of baseball and – the connections and we, we spoke about it before. And what if, you know, we, there's so many what ifs and what. And so now as you're talking about Kurt Flood and I read in the book, you know, what what I don't think some people realize is when Kurt Flood was going to Philadelphia, well, was traded to Philadelphia. I think he gave up like a hundred five thousand dollar contract. I think that's the, the the number that you had in the book. And so he gave up a lot of money that at that time, that was a lot of money to give up. But what I'm thinking is there was talk about he didn't want to go to Philadelphia because that was the, you know, racist city. If Kurt Flood, and I don't know if, if he ever said anything, if he had gotten traded to a different team, one that was I don't know, maybe the Mets, you know, New York, more diverse or whatever, right. would, well, it, would yeah, he have challenged it? It's, it's a good point. And you know, I, I I also brought this up with Dick. I brought it up with his son. Dick just kind of dismissed it. But, you know, Dick was from Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh Pirates. I mean, you know, they Branch Rickey went over to Pittsburgh in 1964, and he was in the process of integrating the Pirates and, and actually foreshadowed the Latin Americanization of baseball because he actually, on a Rule 5 draft, picked up Roberto Clemente. Mm-hmm. And then he was signing Hispanic players. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was somewhere in the 1960s, maybe early 70s, where the Pittsburgh Pirates fielded the first all-black team. Early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that Allen would have fit like a hand in a glove with the Pirates, and he would have played on some world championship teams, and he would have been in the Hall of Fame because you wouldn't have had, you know, all the conflict that surrounded his career. He would have been playing on an integrated team. He would have, you know, the limelight would have been off him. The pressure would have been off him. 
he'd be in the Hall of Fame today if he played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. No. Yeah, well, he should be in the Hall of Fame anyway. Well, he should yeah. be in the Hall of yeah. Fame anyway. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. yes. Getting back to Tim, uh, not to uh, Steve Carlton. What I found fascinating in his book was his physical regimen. His his getting ready for the game. He was he did not run. He did a lot of uh, martial arts. Yes, he which did. was very very interesting. Yep. So, could you expand on that? Yeah, Carlton hated running. Absolutely yeah. hated running. <laughs> I got that from the book. He oh didn't yeah, run at all. <laughs> yeah, he didn't run at all. In fact, he it's not that he couldn't because he did. Uh, Tug McGraw we became we became very good friends as well. And Tug had once told me that they were out spring training, and I forget it was like Spring Lakes or something like that. They were both in the same complex, and it was only about four miles away from Jack Russell Stadium where the Phillies played in Clearwater, Florida. So he said, uh, hey, Lefty, why don't you and I take a jog? Okay. So they jogged over to Jack Russell Stadium. And by the time you get there, you know, Tug is out. I mean, he's just like heaving and sweating and everything else. Tugger told me Carlton didn't even break a sweat. And he looks at McGraw and he says, you call that a workout? Ah, what a waste of time. Right. So it's not that he couldn't run. He chose not to. And uh, you talk to the pitching coach, Ray Ripplemeyer. He didn't like that. You know, he you know, he was he wanted his pitchers to run. That's what you had to do. And then finally, Ozark has to reach a kind of uh, truce with Carlton. So he says, OK, um, what exactly? How do you want to stay in shape? Well, around this time, Roman Gabriel was the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles, and he brought his own personal trainer uh, to Philadelphia with him from Los Angeles. There's a guy by the name of martial arts, a guy by the name of Gus Huffling. And Gus Huffling was into the martial arts. Uh, and there's a whole psychological piece to this. It's not just the, reg- the physical regimen. It- it's also... Uh, achieving discipline over your mind and mind over matter stuff. And he he had a bunch of weird things like rice treatments where he'd have a bucket of rice and he'd have Carlton drive his hand all the way. And, and Carlton could do it. He could drive his hand all the way to the bottom of that barrel. Whereas, you know, you talk to Bob Boone, you talk to some of the other guys on that team, they could not even get a foot down into that barrel of rice. But Carlton had this, you know, fascination with Shintoism and Eastern right stuff. That's the stuff he'd be reading. And and he got this fascination with martial arts. And to his credit, he became an expert in it. And these are grueling workouts. And he did them every day except the day he pitched. And that gave him unbelievable strength. And I might add that one of the reasons Carlton was so great is when he threw the, the an, an escaped injury was when he threw the slider, he threw it with a stiff wrist. When you break the wrist, that's when you have a problem with your UCL. And he stayed away from injuries. And yet he could throw that slider so effectively and for so many years. And that's a pitch that destroys arms. It just tears them apart. So, yes, that that regimen uh, worked. And it got to the point when Dallas Green came in, you know, when he said to the pitchers, you don't have to run, but you got to go through this workout. And pitchers said, no, thanks. We'll run. <laughs> we'll run. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And you mentioned it, the, the, the discipline that instilled in him was, you know, made him that great. 
And uh, I'm going to bring up something else that I might I might ruffle, ruffle your feathers, which I don't mean to do. But he, when he played in the playoffs and, and, and actually in the regular season, he helped himself with the bat. Yeah. They don't do it anymore, but he helped himself. He has 13 career homers. And I know he got a couple of big hits in, in the playoffs to help his own cause. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's the one thing that distances him from arguably the greatest left-hander of all time, Sandy Koufax. Koufax didn't need to win games with his bat. Carlton did. He really did, especially in 1972. And Carlton was a good hitter. I mean, there were a couple times when Ozark used him as a, as a pinch hitter. So he could, you know, he could do it from both sides of the plate. And an interesting story was that, and McGraw always used to say this, the pitchers really were closet hitters. You know, they could not wait to get their ups. And they would try to play wall ball in batting practice. And Carlton would always win them, always win them, because he could drive the ball you know, the furthest. And, and Carlton was also very big into golf. And there was a story about uh, the Phillies visiting Pittsburgh and Carlton, you know, is at one end of the hallway there and he has uh, iron and he's driving these golf balls down to the other end of the hallway. He's trying to hit the door on the fly and, and Luzinski and, and Christensen are trying to sleep and they hear this Bing, 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 right? And, and they go outside, right? And there's Carlton. Well, what are you trying to do, Lefty? I'm trying to hit the, this ball on a fly, direct line drive to that door. Oh, okay. Well, they knew not to press it because one of Carlton's favorite things just to play with you was headbutting. And Christensen was at the receiving end, a lot of those headbutts. So those guys retreat, they go in. Well, Eddie Ferenz the next morning, because Carlton just destroyed the doors and the ceiling in that hall. The next morning, Eddie Ferenz, the traveling secretary, comes up and he says, green fees on the uh, fifth floor come to $126.76. You going to pay him, Lefty? <laughs> That's a great story, and that's one of the gems in this in this book. The book is also about Tim McCarver. I mean, we're talking a lot about Steve Carlton, but Tim McCarver is an absolute, you know, essential in, in this book. And that the way he helped, like you you said, resurrecting Carlton's career with, with the slider when he got back from to Philadelphia. From I think he went to Montreal, he went to Boston, and he, and he finally came back to to Philadelphia. I mean, he was just. There, right to get Steve Carlton back on track. Yeah, he 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 really was, and that's and I would say that he was uh, less instrumental in Gibson's career because Gibson was just unbelievable. He's very good before Carlton uh, McCarver matured as a catcher, but you know you can't you can't exclude him from Gibson's success either because you know as as you gentlemen know, good catchers can win games, not just for their pitcher, not just by the pitch selection they have, but for framing and getting them strikes and blocking balls in the dirt. And and, and both those guys threw the slider. And McCarver, literally, there's game film of him. And in the series, World Series 64-2, he is banging his glove on the ground. He wants the ball in the dirt. Now, if you can't block that, your pitcher's not going to have confidence in you. So McCarver, in very subtle ways, 
was very, very successful in both those pitchers' careers. Mm -hmm. But Carlton, hands down, Carlton would not have been a Hall of Famer if it was not for Tim McCarver. And and I again, I really I have a special sympathy for Tim. Yes, because I was a catcher and he was a role model for me. But and I understand, especially now coaching pitchers, what that means. I mean, that my catcher is every bit as important as the head coach to me. He's the head coach on the field. And Tim, I just he never got the credit he deserved. He just never got the credit he deserved. You know, it's famous that Steve Carlton you know, did not talk to the press very often. Is it fair to say that McCarver spoke for him uh, in certain times? Yeah, it is. It is. McCarver did everything for him, really. I mean, Carlton, as of 1970, a lot of people just think it was not, in 1973, Carlton stopped, stopped talking to the press, and that was it. End of story. He didn't talk to anybody in the media at all. That No, that's not true. There was a writer by the name of Bill Conlon of the Philadelphia Daily mm-hmm. News. He was a, he was a muck uh, a muckraker. What they called in the 1960s the chipmunk writers of Dick Young. You guys, I know, are familiar with Dick Young. Right, of course. Don't, yes. don't get me started with Dick Young with Tom Peter being traded. I, 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 yeah, Jeff we, is a. We sad. know about Dick Young. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so I, I I have to be careful because I really shouldn't get started <laughs> with Bill Conlon and Stan Hockman. But Conlon was was just he was just unbelievable in in terms of excoriating Carlton for every little thing in 1973. So at first it became Carlton's not talking to Bill Conlon. And in fact, they they almost had to take Conlon off the beat because he couldn't talk to Steve Carlton. But so then the next year, Hawkman starts in on him because Conlon can't do it. They're both writing for the Daily News. And then it became, well, he's not talking to Stan Hockman. And then he's not talking to the Inquirer writers. And then he's not talking to the Bulletin writers. But finally, and ironically, in 1979, the last interview he gave was to Stan Hockman. And then he said, no more. That's it. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's a funny story that everybody goes and, and asks McCarver how Carlton's doing, right? You know, McCarver had gotten so frustrated with it all the time that he, you know, he said, everybody's always coming to me for Carlton. Carlton has a bad case of diarrhea. And they asked me how Carlton's feeling. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and Carl, you know, and, and McCarver was his caddy in, in, in that respect, but he did it out of friendship. Now, the interesting thing is that in 1980, McCarver makes the transition to the Phillies broadcast booth. So, you know, now he's the guy that's interviewing. Carlton felt uncomfortable about that. And he talked to McCarver because he was talking to McCarver. And they both agreed that, look, you know, it wouldn't be fair because it jeopardizes Carlton's policy with the press. So Tim stopped interviewing, you know, yeah. and that was that just out of friendship. The The book is filled with great stories. And there's a story in there. And I'm, I know we're short on time, so I'm not going to get into it, but has to do with breaking furniture in a hotel room oh, and yeah. glue and and just I can just imagine <laughs> we'll leave it at that by the book just for that story alone but there's tons of great stories in there Tim McCarver becomes a phenomenal broadcaster obviously a hall of famer for his broadcasting but they say uh you know catchers make great managers 
catchers make great announcers too, because, you know, analysts, you know, as he of course came to New York and, and was doing Met games for a, a long time. And Jeff and I had the pleasure of getting to hear him. What a, what a great broadcaster. I mean, yes. he's such a talented guy. Yes. Really was extremely articulate, yeah. really self-educated at the higher level of education, avid reader, could quote Shakespeare just as easily as Yogi Berra in the same sentence. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's really a talent. But I got to tell you, Leonard, you talk about some wonderful stories. There are probably just as many I couldn't print. <laughs> oh, we, we would love to see. That's the book. There you go. There's the sequel. <laughs> yeah. and, and then how many lawsuits would I have filed against me? Right? Well, but it would make a great book. It would be You're right. Still, it would be worth it. Come on. Come on. Suck it up. Write the book. <laughs> I'll, I'll go back on my deathbed. I'll publish. <laughs> So one last question before we let you go, and you, thank you for your time. This has been a fascinating talk uh, on Lefty and Tim, and we got into Dick Allen and, and Kurt Flood. It was, it was just a great conversation. My last question to you is, I'm looking at, at Steve Carlton's baseball reference page here. He left Philadelphia at age of 41 in 1986 and then went on to the Giants, the White Sox, the Indians, and the Twins. He played until he was 43 years old. Did he, did, in your opinion, should he have just stopped at, at Philadelphia without trying to hang on? Yes. I am the kind of person that believes sooner rather than later. My second all-time hero is Mike Schmidt. And uh, that was very difficult because these guys are, are taught to compete. And, you know, you play until they take the uniform away from you. In mm -hmm. my case, you play until baseball tells you has no use for you. And that happened in college. But <laughs> these guys, you know, and that was Carlton. Carlton was always tuned to win. So and and Bill Giles, the owner of the Phillies at the, at the time when they, they released him in 1986, knew that. And he knew he begged him to retire, begged him to retire. But, you know, this man spent his life training and preparing to win. There is no way he is going to walk away from the game. And when the twins got rid of him, he was still trying to come back. Now, mm. you know, that's a lifetime. That is a mindset. And you just can't do that. And these guys, Hall of Fame guys, they have a terrible time adjusting to life after baseball. A terrible time. Yeah. And, and Carlton went and secluded himself. But yes, I think all, all said and done, he should have followed Giles and retired in 86 mm -hmm. because then we'd have nothing but great memories. It was very sad to watch him pitch in a Giants uniform. Very sad. Well, for any great, like Richie Ashburn, when he went over to the Mets or the Cubs, uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that the Phillies never traded Michael Jack because I, I couldn't have watched that. It was painful for me as a kid to watch Dick Allen in a L.A. Dodgers and St. Louis Cardinals uniform. And, it, you know, it was painful to watch Carlton in a Giants uniform. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for this, this absolutely enlightening interview. Lefty yeah, and Tim, you. how Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver became baseball's best battery. Pick it up at, at your local bookstore, preferably. But if you have to go to Amazon, go to Amazon. But really, support your local bookstore. This is a wonderful book. Two great players. They needed each other. This has been just a fascinating interview. Thank you, Bill, so much. Hey, guys, I really enjoyed it. One of the best interviews I've ever had. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Len, what do you think of that interview? 
I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I love when we have these authors on. They, I talk about doing the heavy lifting. They do the heavy lifting. Yep. And, and the price that we pay is, is a book. So much research. Stuff to read. So, well, yeah. fascinating to read uh, what they went through and the careers and how they inter- interlapped with each other. It was you just two, so fun. Yeah. You have two major players. You know, Tim McCarver. Both Hall went of Famers. On, Both Hall right. of Famers. That's right. When, Tim McCarver went on to have an incredible career as a, as a broadcaster. broadcaster. He's in the broadcasting wing of the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And, and a great player. You know, of course, Steve Carlton goes without saying an incredible pitcher, obviously, in the Hall of Fame. Bill did the heavy lifting, and and we are grateful to him for that. You know, Len, I wonder if uh, Lefty and Tim would have used a pitchcom if it was available back then. Yeah, yeah, that. I I don't know. I think Tim might have, but but I don't think I don't think Lefty would have. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, Max Sergio was asked about pitchcom, and I'm going to quote from an article in the in Sports Illustrated. He says, and I quote: "Does pitchcom help? Yes, but I also think it should be illegal. I don't think it should be in the game." The fact we're taking this out of the, the fact that we're taking this out of the game and we're just putting in technology. Now, everybody, you can't steal signs on second. The pitcher can't have an advantage of having a complex system, Scherzer said. And he goes on, it's part of baseball trying to crack someone's signs. Does it have the desired intent that it cleans up the game a little bit? Yes. But I also feel it takes away part of the game. So, you know what, Len, what do you think about that? I, I, I kind of agree with him. I mean, you know, we're not talking about the Houston Astros with the the, the, the garbage the trash can, cans. trash cans. Of, we're talking about they're actually taking the technology and, you know, sign stealing without technology. I think it's perfectly legal. Hey, if you're going to put signs down and I can crack it, more power to you. So they're taking this out. Does it, does it quicken the game? I don't I don't know. I mean, really? Is that what they're doing it, it, it is to make the game faster? Make the game faster so that the guy in second can't be later. You know what? Then then change the signs, like Scherzer was saying. But you know what? I, I'm thinking down the line. You know, you've ever watched a third base coach? He has this complex system of, of signs. Oh, yeah. The head, the, the chest, the arm, the leg, the belt, the ear, you know, you know, going through all those signs, flashing it to the uh, the batter. Well, what, what's wrong with the batter? And, and now the, uh, the coach is having a uh, press a button. Oh, bunt. Press a button. Swing away. After you, What's stopping if, that? If they had Pitchcom a long time ago, there were there'd be some movies that would have some scenes that were not part of them. Some some scenes in those movies, like like in Naked Gun, I think it was, where they they go through the funny signs and things. I mean, I forget that, but it's part of the game. It's part it's part of, of the, the game. It's part of the game. Of- baseball the pitcher has to cover the ball right the pitcher has to know how to keep his hand with in the mitt so he's not tipping off pitches that's part of the game if stealing these signs is done legitimately you know not with uh the like you said the trash cans all that there is nothing wrong with it it's part of the game there's nothing wrong with it it's really taking something out of the game Right. And, you know, it, I mean, I guess technology is obviously getting more and more, but this, you know, technology isn't always good. Right. 
this is it's it's really taken out something of the game. And you know what? We'd like to know what you think. So give us a call at 516-855-8214 and let us know your feeling if pitchcom should be part of the game or not. And like I said, what's you know it's gonna it's going to continue with the third base coach, and then then you're gonna have you see those cards those players have now where they should be positioning. All they gotta do is have you know the, the manager tap a button, oh move over here, move. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, they're gonna have in their ears. They'll have they'll have speakers and whatever. Yeah, that's that is the way the game's going. That is the direction it's going. It's, it's a video game. They're trying to make it a video game when it really shouldn't be. Right, and Jeff, let's just take a moment to pay our respects to someone who was in the game for I think he was he was the announcer for the the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Los Angeles Dodgers what is it 67 years and that is Vin Scully who passed away this week I'm listening to all these things about him obviously he we we never had him on the show but he again is somebody who I hear all these things how he he met I heard something today this guy from Alabama was telling a story about how he went to a game and he happened to be in the elevator with Vince Scully and he just told Vince Scully I'm a big Dodger fan I'm from Alabama when the elevator got to its uh, destination they get out and there's a couple of players or something and Vince Scully introduces this guy and says hey this is my new friend from Alabama it, I mean the, the and and I heard that people would write him notes. He wrote back. He sent them pictures. He's somebody who, who knows if he was you know healthy enough, he may have come on this show. Everything you hear about, but you are nodding your head. You are nodding your head. But we never tried. I I don't know. But the but the point is, Vin Scully. He passed away at ninety four years ninety four years old, and may he rest in peace part of baseball history really hearing him uh do a game and that i did i heard i would i would specifically listen to whether it was on youtube or whatever it was um whenever i could to hear vince scully his voice was just was golden and and just amazing so i i just our respects to uh his family and if you want to say something you you yeah his uh iconic voice yeah, there for so many big games. He was a fabric of of American baseball. I mean, when you talk baseball announcers, you talk you know, there's Vince Scully, then there's everybody else. Yeah, and uh, he was he will be missed, but uh, he's given baseball such a gift with his his word pictures that he paint for you on yeah. uh, on radio and on on TV. Yeah, I heard also. Uh, there was a period of time they said you could go down what, wherever it was and, and like you could actually hear uh, the Dodger game as you were tr- walking down a street because right. everybody's transistor radio would be on the game or exactly. or at the game. People in the stands would have their transistor radios on and the the the, the players could actually hear him announcing the game. The announcers become such a big part of of baseball. You know, and he, uh, no, no one bigger, no one bigger than Vince Scully. All right, so Jeff, let's get to our next interview uh, with Doug and with with Janice, and here they are, Janice Smella and Doug Shiding. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you want a lip-smacking, finger-licking good podcast, then you got to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. They have the best guests and the best recipes on all the internet. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ. Baseball and especially barbecue listeners, you guys are in for a treat. Returning to the show by popular demand is none other than our special guest co-host. We might have to just take off guest and just take the word guest off and just say co-host. Doug Shiding of Rogue Cookers. He's gone rogue. And then... The, the, the guest, the real guest, our barbecue guest. I, I, I was going to do a whole intro for our guest, but I'm looking at her about on, on a page on the internet, and it says it all. It says, who is Janice anyways? And it says, I'm just a gal that likes to cook. Well, from the research I've done, she's a lot more than that. But joining us is none other than Janice Smella. She's of Smella Q, and we are we're thrilled to have Janice join us on Baseball and Barbecue. So welcome, Janice. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. As we do, we, when we have a guest co-host, we let the guest co-host open the line of questioning, the conversation, Whatever it is, so Doug, the floor is yours. Oh boy! Yeah. Do I start with the softball or the or the hard one? You know, the fastball. You know, the high cheese. But uh, are you going to grill her? No, 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 no. Just kind of you know, you know, brush her off the plate a little bit. But no, I'll give you the softball. Okay, tell me. All right, is it two time on the Porkapalooza? And then I also saw we're a three time Canadian champ. So maybe you're. Uh, a five-time champ, or and that's how you get to the Houston Rodeo so many times. Gosh. Yeah, I saw a two-time champ and a three-time champ. Are you a five-time champ, or uh, how many times are you a Canadian champion? Uh, officially, I'm a three-time national champion in Canada. Okay. But you know, I, I'll take anything. You can, I, I go with anything. I go by any name you want to give me. <laughs> and of course, if you're going to call me a champion, then label it <laughs> uh i have to say that i'm probably not the most up to date with my social media and all of the updates across whatever platforms and uh wherever i'm labeled but uh like i said i'll just go by chap how's that that's awesome and is that how you get into the houston rodeo that's where we've met and that's where we've we've seen each other a lot yeah i think that's that's how we got into the Houston Cook the first time, um, okay. was we were uh, the Canadian champ the year that they invited Canada, so that was pretty awesome. And then uh, the great thing was we've done really well, and so they keep inviting us back, and I've really discovered, you know this I think already, but our pit, our first pit really came from Texas, so like my barbecue heart is in Texas, no questions asked. So awesome. Houston calls us, or anyone really in Texas calls us and says, hey, do you want to come down? Well, 
I'm there. So, and I can't, I can't seem to leave. <laughs> Janice, you're, you're from Canada and we actually get a lot of downloads in Canada because our, if you've, if you've never heard it, I, hopefully you'll hear it. Our intro song and our song that we go out on is actually performed and written by two Canadians, and that's Shel Krakowski, who we call the uh, the poet, and Dave Dresser, the musician, and they actually do the song, and they are from Canada. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> We've got to love Canada. And yes. I'm actually, like, the funny part is I'm from Calgary, Alberta, so I don't know if the Texans know this, but we call ourselves the the... Canadian cousins to Texas. So we've got ranches, we've got beef, we've got oil. So all of the things that uh, we think that Texans have. And in my backyard, at least, we have barbecue. Yes. So, Janet, how is the uh, competitive barbecue scene up in Canada? Um, it's cold. <laughs> That's why she comes to Texas. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's cold. It's it's a little bit different. In many cases, I would say it's a little bit tighter knit because there's not as many teams. I would say that barbecue is an adoption. And there's so many different kinds of barbecue, especially in the U.S., that Canada just picks up what it likes. Um, most of the contests in Canada run under KCBS, so it's definitely more Kansas City style. But I think that's also, like on a personal level, that's my attraction to what I'll call Texas barbecue because uh, it's a little bit different in the elements of uh, chicken is a good is a good example. You don't cook pork uh, in all or some of the contests that happen in Texas, so. Um, not that that's the only method, but it's definitely um, an adopted cook in Canada. So it's it's a smaller community. Um, it's pretty tight. We basically see many of the same people from contest to contest. And I fly all across Canada to be wherever the contest is. Um, I'm a little nutty that way, I guess, but I just really want to cook. So it's a great opportunity for me. I get to travel the country seeing people in aspects of barbecue. Well, Janice, if I was going to a restaurant in Canada, forget barbecue. What would be uh, some of the meats that I would see on the menu that might be different than something here in the, uh, in the United States? There's definitely more variety of ethnic foods. So that's one of the advantages, I think, in Canada. So you're gonna see, we don't have specific areas um, where the cultures are, but we'll have, there's a Chinatown. But uh, for example, like, so you can get Chinese food, you can get Vietnamese food, you can get Ethiopian food. You can get um, Thai food, and they're all quite authentic to the flavors and the seasonings of those countries. And so, like in Korean food, for example, you'll see pork jowls quite common. Um, and that's kind of the jowl is the meat kind of in the chin area, uh, mm-hmm. off the cheek. 
tastes like bacon. <laughs> um, so it's a winner. But if you went to a restaurant and said, hey, can I have some jowl in a, I'm going to say an American restaurant, you're going to probably going to get some strange looks. It's like New York, actually. It sounds, it sounds like, you know, New York City that you get all the uh, the different cuisines. But do you do you have, uh, and, and now maybe this is stereotype in Canada, but moose or elk or any of that on, on the menu? Uh, you can, you can get bison a lot more easily. Okay. Um, it's still probably a specialty product, but uh, I think in people's homes, it's not uncommon. So um, the other day, <laughs> Uh, as a favor to our neighbor, we watered their plants. Uh, we had a bit of a heat wave. Um, so for us, that's like, I don't even think that touches 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So <laughs> that tells you it's cold here. But we watered their lawn uh, while they were away on holidays, and he gave us a couple moose steaks. So it'll be, uh, it's definitely more common amongst like hunters, and that would be a, a private thing. Um, but uh, there's a lot of regulation around uh, hunting in Canada. You cannot bear arms. Um, there's no, I don't know which amendment it is that uh, you guys are able to carry guns, but that's def definitely not something common in Canada. So uh, <laughs> your access to moose meat and elk meat is definitely uh, on private land or on crown land by licensing. So. We have a lot of regulation. <laughs> well, I saw that you were this. Uh, I saw you were also either the past president or the current president of the Canadian Barbecue Society, or did I read that wrong? So, and tell me, is that a sanctioning body, or what kind of uh, society is that? So, I'm the current president, but I okay. am exiting at the end of this term. Um, which is the end of this year of the Canadian Barbecue Society. We're not okay. a sanctioning board. We just promote barbecue nationwide, which is a huge endeavor. Um, Canada's, you know, land mass is huge, but everybody lives about 100 miles from the border. 90% of our um, population lives very close to the American border. Um, and we're only... I think the latest numbers are maybe worth 30 million people. Um, so we just support barbecue in different facets. So a large portion of what uh, Canadian Barbecue Society has done in the past is promote competitions. Um, so we track results, we track scores from the different sanctioning boards. Um, so whether that's KCBS or IBCA in some cases when I <laughs> come down to the U.S., um, PNWBA is another sanctioning board that runs contests. So um, we basically flatline or we we uh, streamline the scores so that it doesn't matter which sanctioning board you're competing under, um, you'll still have a, a rank across the country. And then we okay. support the jackshot, for example, um, across like at every one of our contests. So we have a representative at every contest that will uh, provide the jackshot for the team. So we try to gather the, the competition community together and uh, provide some goodwill and some good cheer. Oh, no kidding. Wow. That would be a popular aspect. 
that's how we think. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, D- Danielle DVQ does that at, at uh, a lot of competitions. So now I kind of understand where she she brings that to the, the U.S. competitions. Yeah. We like her jack. <laughs> I got to say, I've been looking around your website, smellacute.com, and it is uh, very interesting. I mean, I'm looking at the uh, supper challenge here. And it looks like some really good dishes. I could talk about some of, some of these dishes. Did you make, I guess, do you make these recipes up yourself or did you have some help? I mean, I see dill pickled potato chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe I'll just backtrack and explain a little bit. So okay, Supper please. Challenge was born out of uh, complete boredom during COVID. <laughs> um, the lockdown in Canada was definitely more stringent, um, I think, than in the U.S. And so we were prohibited from, uh, restaurants were closed, we were prohibited from gathering um, inside or outside and in minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius, either way, nobody wants to be outside. So I wasn't doing a lot of cooking uh, on the circuit. And so a friend of mine said, you know, like I would like to cook more. I'd like to cook something that would challenge me. And so um, his first week, uh, he did jambalaya. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. We should, I'd like to push myself and cook something different as well. So every week we would come up with a random theme that we would have to cook around. So the week that uh, the dill pickle potato chip soup was what I cooked, but the theme was chip. So some people took it as potato chips. That's what I did. Some people took it as chocolate chips, so they baked cookies. Um, I took it to really challenge myself to like think outside the box. Like, what is something that I either wouldn't use in the normal convention or wouldn't cook with um or like would change the way that we would cook it so nobody usually eats chips in a soup form uh so that's kind of how that came about and then uh i had so much time on my hands and i was having fun and i really liked some of the dishes i was making that i started posting them on I, i built a website i taught myself how to build a website and i started posting my recipes yeah, I mean, some of these look delicious. I mean, I'm going to try this. I don't know if I can make it. Maybe I'll ask Len to make it for me. The miso <laughs> chocolate cauliflower. Yeah. You want me to make it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm not Doug Shining. I mean, what? <laughs> I'm not Doug or Janice. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm going to challenge Len to make this for me. Uh-oh, there we go. The gauntlet. There you go. There you go. go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Janice, uh, if we could talk about... The fa- listen, we there's so many things we want to talk about, but uh, I, you are a television star, right? <laughs> tell, tell us about your experience on Firemasters. Sure. <laughs> I'm laughing because I actually, in my personal life, I would never call myself a champion. So now, <laughs> even though I've advocated this on this podcast, and then... <laughs> I'm going to now say I'm a television star. I think it's really funny. Um, yeah, I uh, I was cast to the show uh, early in April last year. Um, I think people have had different experiences. I had watched the show quite a bit. A few of my friends had been on the show. 
Um, and after doing cooking challenge for, I think, almost two years at that point, I was like getting really comfortable of like cooking outside of my comfort zone. And so um, when the opportunity came up, I thought, oh, I don't know, this sounds really crazy, but I think I'm going to apply. So I uh, messaged a friend of mine and I was like, should I do this? Um, and he had been on a prior version or prior season and he's like, you absolutely should. And I was like, well, you know, the, the problem with being on the show is that you have to come up with dishes on the spot. Supper challenge is weekly. So I can think, I basically spend all week thinking about what I'm going to make, how I'm going to make it, what do I need? And I thought, oh, this is going to be really challenging. So when I was cast onto the show, the first round is you cook a signature dish. So that one's easy because I could prep at home. I could do it, you know, on my own time. Um, and I could practice as much as I wanted to get my dish done in half an hour. So that part was not too bad. Um, but then, <laughs> then I got... I kind of freaked myself out because I thought, oh my gosh, what if I make it past the first round? I'm going to have to cook. I'm going to have to come up with a dish to cook a, like a secret ingredient in a half hour. And so I started watching the show with a new perspective of like, what would I cook on the spot? And I think my kids also they didn't know that I was going to be on the show, but they would throw random ingredients out or they would critique or they often critique most of my cooking <laughs> and judged frequently on tastes and tenderness <laughs> and appearance. By your kids. <laughs> By my kids. Of the course. Barbecue kids. <laughs> <laughs> so if they would say, um, I'd say, you know, name something we haven't cooked before. Like we'd go to the store and they'd say, oh, what is that? Um, like a artichoke or something. So then I would I'd naturally have to buy it and then have to come up with a way to cook it right away. So it was good practice, but it obviously made out well. I don't know if I should share that I made through how I did on the show. Is that, is that a spoiler? It's probably a spoiler. Okay. Well, the spoiler, it's been on. Been yeah, on anyway. come on. It's like, you know... <laughs> I, I have this conversation, so the, okay, Let, you know what, I'm glad the three of you are here, because I'm going to, I'm going to, this has to do with it. What is the statute of limitations on a show, and especially the finale of a show? Because there are shows, now everybody can record things, right, and binge watch and all. If you're talking about something, and it's a show, and it's been on, you know, it was like, two years ago or a year ago like how long do, do I have to wait before I can talk about something that somebody hasn't seen yet I mean you, you, do you know what I'm saying like what is the limit what is the statute of limitations is it a year is it two years is it is it a month in this case it's a week because it was on in America a week ago and okay. it's a competition. It's like you don't you don't talk about the football game and say, "Oh, do you know who won?" Of course, you know. Or the What's baseball game. Once the air okay. cats out of the bag, there you go. Talk about it. So then, okay. Janice, how'd you do? Well, I made it past first round. Uh, so I was pleased and slightly horrified. 
I made it to second round. <laughs> and to my absolute shock, I made it past second round. Nice. So I made it to the final round, and I got to cook against Dr. Ray Lampy or Dr. Barbecue. Mm-hmm. I was Dr. so Barbecue. pumped, but I was so intimidated. Not by... <laughs> Not by Ray, but the fact that in the third and final round, you have to cook four dishes on the spot. Um, so, like, on a, yeah, on a normal basis, that's a lot of stress. So, being on the show, I would say, like, I will confess, it was the most stressful day I've ever had. Because everything was definitely out of my element. Um but it worked out well. Um, oh, at wow. the end of the at the end of the round, so it's funny because my kids didn't know I was on the show. They also didn't know the outcome of the show. And so they watched it live when it was actually broadcast. And uh, they actually had met the one of my fellow competitors the week before just by coincidence. And uh, they were like, yeah, Peter, he probably made it past you because you cannot cook dishes on the spot. <laughs> and uh, so when I came out for like the judging or the results of round three, I had a smile on my face. And the kids are like, oh, do you know that you won? Is that why you're smiling? And I was like, no, I was so happy to be done. I really didn't care. But <laughs> So the good and the bad is that I did win the the episode. So I I think I can I can say besides being a champion and a TV star, I'm a fire master. You are! Yeah. Yay! Woo! <laughs> You've never had a fire master before. Oh. So there you go. Oh, add it to Jeff, Doug. Yeah. Let's add it to our uh... to the list. Yes. Of, of... First accomplishments. So. Yeah. Hall of Famers. It was great. But now a fire master. A fire master. Drop yeah. them. I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought it was going to be you with the, the title kind of messed me up because it said, you know, uh, what girls just want to have fun. So I thought you were going to cook against the lady in the final. And because Jennifer was asking, oh, do you know who won? I said, no, I don't know who won. So, but. Uh, um, one thing that kind of bothers me about this show is they, they talk about it and they say, have you made a decision? And they don't really talk in private, I guess, you know, on TV about who's going to be the, the winner of that round. How is that process done and are the producers in, involved in that? So you are judged like it is live judging in front of right. you. But I feel like, like, to be honest, it's a TV show. They need content, right? So um, there's like a variety of commentary that is not shown on TV. And so I also think that they don't lead on, like even as a competitor, I didn't have any idea of which way it was going. I think like as a competitor, I also picked myself apart. I knew like in round one, my steaks were overcooked and I'm so angry about it. But they also didn't, prep you to um, like they tell you what's going to be they tell you the grills are going to be preheated but they had them at 700 degrees Fahrenheit like nobody cooks steak or anything 
at six and seven hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Plus the fire pit like literally is hotter. I kept saying on the show, I think I'm in hell. I know I'm in hell because it's so hot. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember you saying that. <laughs> yeah, so I think um so the judging is very real. They they, they say really nice things, you know, your presentation looks good, and then they pick you apart. Your presentation's terrible. And you're like, it's a little bit, like, bipolar. You're like, but you just said it was nice. Yeah. They were the totally guy, critical, I, I thought, of all three of you. Very critical <laughs> yeah. of all three of you, I thought. Yeah. So I think, like, so from that perspective, like, it also emphasizes that the show is very real. Um, we don't know ahead of time who's going on to the next round. We even coming off of each round, we look at each other and we're like, I don't know. Like, you know, you kind of like who has more like positive comments versus negative comments and like are they substantial enough in the judging piece? It's it's really a guess. So I don't know. I, I think the producers are involved, but I also think that the um, the judges, like, they share their honest opinion. Um, and I think, but I do think, like, they do look for things to pick apart a little bit. Um, I had thrown away so many things in the first round. I had burnt some garlic, um, my mustard sauce, and... Uh, Andrea Nicholson had basically picked that apart when she judged me because she saw me throw it out mm. and redo it, but I didn't clean out the pan enough, and she's like, oh, I had burnt garlic, and I was like, okay, but is that real? Like, <laughs> you saw me throw out garlic, but did you really taste burnt garlic? I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not... I think there's a possibility she did taste burnt garlic, but... Sometimes you need content, perhaps. Right. So there has to be a little controversy. There has to be, it, it can't just be smooth sailing because it would, boring. That's right. With all these reality shows or whatever, there has to be something because otherwise, what, you know, it. Exactly. You, know, you got to yeah. get mad and throw a steak in the trash can, for example. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then freak out because every steak you cooked is. Is overcooked. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to I want to get back to asking you about uh, Bob in Canada. You said you earlier that you fly all over the country. I mean, looking at the map, Calgary. If anybody doesn't know what Calgary is, it's on the western side of Canada. So do you travel? I mean, to Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto, and out at west of Vancouver to all these different uh, competitions. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and and do, you, you don't, you, do you take your equipment with you or do you have to, I assume you're not driving to Toronto. I mean, that's a, that's a couple of, that's a day or two drive. Yeah, so we've driven to Kenora, Ontario before, which would be north of North Dakota-ish. Mm -hmm. um, I've flown to Niagara Falls and competed um, in Ontario and in Ottawa. So in those cases, when we're that far out, We'll borrow equipment. Um, conveniently, barbecue teams tend to have a personal plethora of barbecues in their backyard, so it's it's not too difficult to borrow equipment, and uh, it also adds a, another element of surprise because when you're cooking on someone else's equipment, 
um, you may or may not be familiar. So um, the first time I actually f- uh, cooked a full contest on um, drums was actually on borrowed equipment out in Niagara Falls. And so I had never cooked on drums. They were homemade. Um, so there's an interesting challenge when you're cooking on other people's equipment. But in most cases, we'll drive. So if we cook in Vancouver, we'll drive to Vancouver with our gear. Mm-hmm. And Edmonton is uh, directly north of you. So I assume if yeah. there's a competition there, you just go to you just drive there as well. Yeah. So I don't know what the average like drive time for most teams are um, in the U.S., but our average drive time is like north of three hours. There's we're everything is really far right. <laughs> well, as uh, as Jeff likes to quote uh, a certain comedian everything's in walking distance if you have the time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much Janice thank you Doug again yeah, that, that, that great interview yeah she's so fun to talk to yeah that was terrific I, I baseball and barbecue you can't you cannot beat it not at all. I mean, she was at the American Royale World Series of Barbecue. She was at the Jack Daniels World Championship, the Houston Livestock Show, the, and Rodeo, where we know Doug is. Doug is always there. So, yeah, she is just, just fabulous. And, Jeff, we're going to be closing the episode out. So I just want to tell everyone that the episode 145 is brought to you by Bet Online, where the game starts. And Doug, uh, Doug, uh, now I'm calling you Doug. <laughs> but Jeff, we're going to end this episode the way that we love to end it with our friends. The poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. The song is Baseball Always Brings You Home. And that is so true. So until episode 146, see ya.
Oh